you, if you have a Bible, open it with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. As we continue a series that we started a couple weeks ago now called Blocks. Uh, we called this series in 1 Timothy uh, Blocks because, in essence, that's what Paul says his whole purpose was in writing to Timothy. Timothy's the pastor of a church in a place called Ephesus, and he, uh, he's basically you know, struggling. He's trying to figure out how to do this, how to lead a church, how to teach what he needs to teach, and so Paul writes him periodically, actually two letters that we have, and he gives him instruction and encouragement. He says, here's how you build your life as a pastor. Here's how you build your church as you pastor your church. Here's how you tell people to build their lives so that they can follow Jesus like they're supposed to. He says it right here in, in chapter two of, or excuse me, chapter three uh, of this actual letter. He says in verse 14, uh, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. He, he says, basically, I, I want you to know how to live. I want you to know how to behave. Uh, if you're in the church of God, you're in the church of the living God. But I want you to know that the church's purpose is to be the, the pillar and the buttress of truth in the world. Uh, pillar and buttress, those are building terms in the old days. In the ancient days, you would uh, construct houses with pillars that would hold up the roof. You'd have this buttress or foundation that would be the support of the whole house and so he says, you know what, you guys as Christians, I want you to know how to live, how to behave, what to believe, so that you can go and provide that truth that God has given you to the rest of the world. Here are the, the building blocks of truth. We hold here at this church that all scripture is given to us for this purpose, you know, that we might know and follow the truth. There's lots of truths out there. We talked about that the first week. There's all kinds of false truths, alternate truths. We just want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God, Right? That's all we want, and we just want to live by that. That's why we study God's Word together. That's why we gather on a weekly basis in a room like this, and I open up the book, and we talk about it, because I want to teach you, and I want to know personally the truth so that I can live by it, and you can live by it as well. That's why we go to life groups. If you're in a life group, I pray that you're in your life group, and that as you gather on a weekly basis, or however often you gather, you gather in hopes of figuring out the truth together from God's Word. You wrestle with it. You uh, comment on it and, and encourage each other. And, and if people are, uh, have blind spots and are missing parts, uh, you're there as fellow life group members to shape and mold people in the truth in your life group. Uh, I pray that you're doing this on a personal level, that you're taking time on a daily basis as uh, you commit to a, you know, a, a time in God's word personally where you're reading the Bible on your own and you're seeking to understand God's truth for yourself so that you can live in it. In fact, that's what Paul tells Tim in his next letter. His, his whole hope for Timothy and everybody who follows in the faith is to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. That, in a nutshell, is what we're doing here every Sunday morning, trying to figure out the word of truth and live by it. Now, to figure out the word of truth, we, we have to understand that there's a system, a process that goes into doing that. So before I get into what we're going to talk about in 2 Timothy today, uh, let me teach you how you, whether it's in a life group or on your own, or even as I prepare my messages for you, this, this is the process that everybody should go through in discerning and understanding God's truth. Let's do some chairs, shall we? Let's start over here. And we'll do three chairs, three chairs of truth. The first chair is that we need to discern in the scriptures every time we open it, whether in a sermon teaching or life group or in a personal way, uh, we need to discern what the original meaning or authorial intent, intent of the scriptures is. What is the authorial intent or original meaning? So that means, don't worry, I tried this already. Um, you have to, are you worried? You seem worried. My wife's worried. She's right over here. You have to get up on a high spot, and you need to look down on the Word of God and try to see the whole thing. Anybody ever gone up on like a, a high place to be able to survey? Like when I golf, some, some of you guys don't golf, but, but like a lot of times when you're golfing, the first shot you hit lands in a spot where there's a hill in front of you, and you have no idea where the next spot is supposed to go. If you're a good golfer, you won't just guess. You'll go up to a spot where you can see where the ball is supposed to land, look at it, and then try to hit it over there even though you can't see where it's going, right? Well, it's the same thing when it comes to studying God's Word. You want to examine everything. If you just go into God's Word, just pop it open and start reading one verse in the middle of wherever you are in the Bible and say, well, that must be the truth based on what your understanding of the truth is from that one verse, you haven't done uh, the, the homework, the necessary CSI work of discerning that truth in its context, in its culture. And that's what the first step requires. 
And lots of times people go to the Bible and they read just a, a section of it, a snippet, and they say, well, this is what that means to me. That's not our goal. We want to understand what it means, not just what it means to me. We don't want to take the Bible and, and make it subject to our interpretation. We want to understand what the Bible says and its original uh, intent and its an original uh, authorial uh, you know, meaning so that we can glean from it that way. So basically, in a cultural and historical and grammatical context, we want to discern what the truth is from God's word. Here's what I mean. Have you ever talked with somebody and they start in the middle of a conversation with you and you're like, what? Is anybody, is anybody married to someone like that? Like, like, uh, like, Eleanor doesn't do this a lot, but every once in a while, she'll, she'll, she has a long stream of thought going and she'll have started a conversation about something about 10 minutes prior and then we'll have moved on to like two or three other things and then she'll pick up the conversation from 10 minutes prior and make a comment 10 minutes later and I'll be like, I do not follow you at all, woman. I have no idea what's going on. But in her mind, it perfectly makes sense because it flows with her you know, stream of thought. And I'm trying to catch up, and so I have to ask her, what are you talking about? And then she explains, and I'm like, oh, I see how that relates. It's 10 minutes ago, but, you know, all right. And off we go. I do the same things. I'll, I, I was actually at Eleanor's uh, a big uh, uh, celebration of her 30th anniversary at her uh, organization's uh, big event, and, and I came to volunteer. It's awesome when I go over there because I'm, I'm not Pastor Mark to hardly anybody. Some of you volunteer with Eleanor at her place, uh, but I'm just Eleanor's husband. I'm just Eleanor's husband, Mark. And so I get all the menial tasks. I have to pick up all the heavy stuff, and, uh, and, and then in this particular event, I was the crossing guard. Everybody, everybody was parking. It's over there in Clay and Parsons where their, their home base is, and everybody was parking in parking lots up and down uh, Parsons, and they would come to the, the crosswalk at Parsons and Clay, and it was my job to push the button and let them know when the white guy, you know, the walking guy, uh, you know, appeared on the sign so that they could walk across the street. I had the full-on fluorescent vest. Uh, it was, I had an umbrella. It was quite striking, my appearance. But uh, <laughs> for the hour and a half or so that people were coming to this thing, that's all I did. I'd greet them. Hey, welcome to the, you know, the event. It's good to have you. And, you know, it was fine. Uh, but I, saw, I noticed this one lady, she's actually the former uh, director of the, uh, the organization, and she was walking up with this very well-to-do guy in a business suit, and so I greeted her warmly, I said, hey, Stacy, how you doing? And she introduced me to the guy that was with her, and I realized right away that this was the guy who was coming to make the big presentation. He was from the bank that was going to award Eleanor's organization this huge check, and so immediately I perked up, and I said to him, you have made my wife the happiest woman in the world. Now, I haven't introduced myself at this point. He doesn't know who I'm married to. I'm just a dude in a, in a fluorescent vest at the corner. And he's starting to think through all of his, you know, dinners in the last few days. Who have I hung out with? And is this guy going to punch me? I could uh, tell that he was a little puzzled, so I went on to explain. My, my, my wife's name is Eleanor. She's the director here. Uh, she's told me, I know no one else is supposed to know, but she's told me that you're coming and you're going to do this whole deal. And I'm so excited for her and for you and for everybody. And, and I think he just went, oh. <laughs> why? Because I started in the middle. I hadn't given the context of who I was and why this made sense. Same thing with the Bible. You can't just jump in. You know, I, I heard of a guy one day who was, you know, seeking God's wisdom on how he should, uh, you know, deal with a certain situation. He plopped the Bible open to where Judas jumps off the edge of a cliff and his guts spill out all over the field. I mean, if, if that is what you think God's wisdom is in the situations and that's how you handle God's word, let's pop it open and let's grab something and this will be what God says to me, thus saith the Lord. But you don't have context and you, don't, you have to understand original meaning, authorial intent, before you can move on to this next chair, which is the chair of gleaning the eternal principles that scripture has for us. The eternal principles we figure out what it says, and it's an original uh, meaning. It's, a, it's authorial intent. But then, once we've kind of gleaned those things, we move on quickly to like, okay, so what's the all-time, everywhere-for-everyone principle that we're supposed to sit in and live in in our lives? What's the truth that regardless of it happening 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, some of the, bold, uh, the Bible's writings are that old, regardless of when it occurs, this is what's supposed to happen in our lives. Again, not what I think this means to me, what the Bible says about life and truth and how it applies, pan-generation and pan-experience and pan-culture. 
Uh, we tend in, in, in understanding these things to, to leave behind the things that are, are, are cultural or, or just part of the scene of the story. Like, anybody remember in the story of John chapter 13, Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, and what does he do? He puts on a, a servant's robe, and what's he do? He washes the feet of his disciples. Later in that same chapter, he says to his disciples, just as I have washed your feet, you should wash each other's feet also. And people, if they read that, uh, and they, they said, well, what that means is that every time we see a Christian, we should bend down and wash their feet, because Jesus said to wash everybody's feet. Well, that would be taking a very literal <laughs> uh, 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 rendering of what Jesus said there, but what Jesus was really teaching is be humble. Be a servant to one another. Not every time you see each other as Christians, you don't have to wash each other's feet. Who's grateful for that? Is everybody grateful for that? Mine are nasty. You don't want to touch these. But the principle that you should live by that is eternal, it is for all times and all places, for all people, is that those who follow after God and would seek to be like God will be humble servants of one another. That's the eternal principle. The final thing that comes is that we move from original meaning to eternal principles to personal application. A lot of times people come to the Bible and they want to jump right to this. This is what it means to me and this is what I'm going to do. But all kinds of error has been generated by that kind of biblical uh, you know, hermeneutic or biblical approach. You have to do the hard work of understanding what it really means and its original intent. You have to discern and bubble up the eternal principles before you say, okay, so this is how I'm going to live. I'm going to take this eternal truth with me and in my marriage, I'm going to display the whole washing the feet thing. I'm going to serve my wife this way humbly. In my parenting, this is how I'm going to act towards my kids as their humble servant, as their father. In my job, I can't stand my supervisor, but I love him in Christ somehow, and I will do what he has called me to do in a humble and servile way so that he is honored and God is honored through my service to him. If I'm in high school, I go to my classmates and I function this way, taking the eternal principle that I've gleaned from Scripture into my relationships with my friends. Bottom line, I discern the truth, I grasp the truth and its eternalness and its, its principles, and then I live the truth. And then uh, it's just kind of like washing your hair. You know, it says, you know, uh, dampen hair, uh, apply shampoo, uh, scrub thoroughly, rinse, and then it says repeat, right? That's how all those instructions, I guess what it says is please wash your hair more than once, right? Repeat. And, and that's, the, that's the Christian objective. Learn the truth, discern the truth. Grasp the truth, appreciate the truth. Live the truth. And then come back next week and learn some more. Repeat. Come back the next time in your personal time of study. Repeat. Come back to your life group. Repeat. Learn. Grasp. Live. If there are differences in opinion, though, of what the Bible is saying, it almost always occurs here in chair number one. Usually if, uh, if churches take different interpretations of, of, of different truths in the scripture, it almost always involves us, you know, saying that culture or context means this, uh, that the grammar sometimes, they take words and they say, well, the word here really means in Greek this, or in Hebrew it means this. And it almost always occurs at the very beginning discovering phase where, where, where churches or, or denominations or people who have differences of opinion in the Bible's truth um, divide, or they head in different directions. And so I want to talk about uh, the differences that can arise uh, because we're going to be in a passage today where differences can arise. Um, I want us to understand these cultural contexts and, uh, and, and, and I want us to be careful in what we uh, take from these cultural contexts that we read in the scriptures uh, so that we don't take too many, we're too literal, or that we don't jettison too many, we're too liberal and our interpretations of those things. Well, let's take some of the easy ones. Did you know that the book of Romans, both of the letters to the Corinthians and the, uh, the letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter, Paul ends each of those by telling those that he's writing to to greet each other with a holy kiss. Has anybody ever heard that before in the Bible? Four times. He says to those that he's writing to, hey, you know, my greetings to so-and-so and so and then make sure, it's almost like, you know, us putting XXOO at the end of our letters. It's like him saying, hey, uh, I want you to, you know, share my love with everybody else. Greet each other with a holy kiss. How many people walked in here today, and as, uh, as you saw people that you've served with or that you go to life group with, how many people greeted them with a holy kiss? Yeah, you know why? 
Because, you know, if that guy's, or if that uh, lady's husband was standing there, he might punch you right in the face, right? Get your lips off my wife, right? In our culture, that's just not the norm. It's not how we roll. And nobody in here has a problem disobeying that commendation from Paul, which he gave four times in the scripture, because all of us just assume, well, that was for then, not for now. Just so you know, in different parts of the world, they still practice that one. I went to the uh, to the southern part, southern, uh, southwestern part of Russia in 1998, just as the uh, kind of the church was beginning to explode again in Russia. And I went over there, and uh, the church that had been underground for hundreds of, like 100 years, uh, it, it basically resurfaced, and they still had lots of their old traditions. And one of their older traditions was, we're going to kiss everybody we see. And so I come into this church to do some of the training that I was doing as a pastor there, and, uh, and, and right off the bat, I, I got like 50 kisses. And they were kind of looking at me like, you know, hit me with one there, dame, dame, dame un beso, you know, or whatever that is. Anyway, uh, and uh, uh, so I started kissing people. Very awkward. Very weird. In Africa, I, I was hanging out with my pastor friend over there. I think I've told you this story before. Like the second day I was there, he, he, he was really fond of me. And so he walked up beside me as I was walking from a school that we had just shared Christ uh, to uh, back to the bus. And he grabbed my hand. And he walked with me for like two or three hundred yards, silently, holding my hand. And I was like, we got to talk, Moses, I don't Because <laughs> in their culture and in their Christian tradition, that's what men do. If they're fond of each other as brothers in Christ, they hold hands and walk around together. In our tradition, that means something different, right? And so, in the, in the culture of the, of, the, of, the, of the scriptures, there's some things that we just like, oh yeah, that's not it. Like, like how about this one? In the same letter that Paul writes uh, to Timothy here in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is what he writes to Timothy, just kind of in his personal uh, you know, hopes for him. He says, hey, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul goes all pharmacist here. He's like, hey bro, heard you got a tummy ache. You know what's some good for that? Some vino. Get you a little uh, Pinot Noir or something like that. And, uh, and, and, you know, mix that in with some of the water that you're drinking. It's going to be good for you. Uh, we don't see the Bible, although we believe in God as our healer, we don't see the Bible as being our doctor. Like, there's been advancements. Has anybody heard of some of the medicines that are good for your Bible? Right? Tums. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the other ones. But uh, uh, there, there's other things besides wine that you could take to fix your stomach ailments. And so we don't take this as normative for today. We're just like, well, that's what they had back in their day. That's what the culture uh, required or allowed. So uh, when it comes to understanding uh, uh, cultural context, we've got to be careful then not to be extreme. We must be careful not to go to extremes as we interpret cultural context in the Bible. So I'm going to use the same chairs here. and Let's, let's start with this one. Uh, there's, there's a, a stream of thought in, in, in the scriptures or in studying the scriptures that can be too literal, too literal in holding to the things that they find there. They want to be so careful not to you know, uh, uh, negate what the Bible is saying that they're, they're very careful to do everything that the Bible says. Like, like, like some traditions, uh, they take uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and they say, well, because it says in there that a woman disgraces her head unless she covers it uh, as she's praying, then everybody in our church who's a woman, when she comes into church, has got to put something over her head. Usually it's a doily or a veil or something like that. And if you've, ever, if you've come from that tradition or if you know someone from that tradition, they take that very literally. And they say everyone must cover their head. They also say uh, that, that men shouldn't have long hair because it says in the Bible, don't have long hair. If you've got some of you guys, no problem. You don't have any. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but, but if you have long hair, it's seen as, 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 as uh, you know, uh, you're, you're shaming yourself because of your long hair. Women are supposed, it says in 1 Corinthians, women are supposed to have long hair. And if they don't have long hair, they're shaming themselves. There's all these things. And in some spiritual traditions, they hold to these things still. And they look at you and I because we don't do them, and they're like, tisk, tisk, tisk. Not quite Christian, those ones. But we'd all look at them and be like, why are you bogging with the hair? Everybody knows why you take your hats off when you sing the anthem, right? It, it didn't start with nationalism. It started with Christianity. Because you disgrace your head if you cover your head as a man when you're praying or doing anything that has a somber or solemn meaning to it. And so when you guys pop your hats off at the national anthem, that's, that's Christian before it was national. But those are things that can get kind of sticky. Here, here's the pluses of being too literal. If you're too literal, you're really safe from you know, maligning or going against anything the Bible says because you try to do all of it. 
But if you're too liberal, it's way too literal. It's way too easy for you to become too legalistic. You get so obsessed with doing everything by the book. Everything, not just the, the principles, the eternal principles that we're supposed to live by, but everything that even in the culture you were supposed to live by, that you can kind of lose things like grace, balance. And ultimately, it's a bad approach if you take it to an extreme to be too literal. It's not really our problem probably in this church or in our culture. Probably the problem that we face in our church and in our culture is this other extreme, which is being too liberal. Too liberal. Uh, for 2,000 years, we've had uh, our, our scriptures, and culture has changed dramatically in two, those 2,000 years. Wouldn't you agree? Like, culture has changed dr- dramatically in my lifetime. Uh, even in recent years, culture has shifted, and, and there has been a, a movement amongst churches to try to keep up with culture. Uh, when, when science came uh, huge, you know, uh, starting a couple hundred uh, years ago, but especially uh, in, in recent years, um, creationism took a beating. And so churches tried to scramble to, um, you know, bring evolution and creation into some balance in the church. And some churches just said, you know what, bug it. We're taking creationism out of this. We're just going to believe in the Big Bang. And maybe God was behind it, but maybe he wasn't. And so liberal thought came in and, and said, we're just going to let loose of some of the things that we've always held to, like a literal creation by a literal God. Now, other things, like the, the sexual ethic that was typically governing the Christian world uh, has come under you know, huge scrutiny and attack uh, in the years uh, of, of our past century in this one because now beginning in, in the heterosexual world, uh, people just saw waiting until marriage to have sex as just being passe and old-fashioned, and why would we do that? Wouldn't you, why wouldn't you want to experience everything a relationship could give you before you went into it in marriage? And so even though the Bible says specifically uh, to keep the marriage bed pure in Hebrews chapter 13, 4. People just started living together and, and sleeping around and all that stuff. And, and they did it because that's where the culture was going. And so that's where the church should go. And, and liberally, they just started interpreting passages as being old-fashioned. It was for that time and that era. But we've advanced, and we're going to be in this era. And we've talked in here in recent years about uh, the LGBTQ thing and, and all those things. And, and listen, I understand, and I've told you this. I want us to live in love. I don't want us to be the church that stands you know, on the high perch of our truth and yells down at a world in condemnation and judgment. I want us to love all people, but I don't want us to ever lose our truth for the sake of our love. We can't do that. And in so many churches, that's exactly what they've done. I learned of uh, 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 an organization called the Jesus Seminar. They, they were these highly trained linguistic uh, professors and doctorates uh, who got together, and they basically studied the, the, the scriptures, and they said, you know what, we're basically going to start taking out the parts of scripture that we don't think are really from the author based on these criteria, whether they you know, th- saw them in the manuscripts coming, like, whatever. They had all these different, I'm not going to bore you with it all. But essentially, they took the book of John, and they, 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 they whittled it down to like a chapter. And they took all this stuff out in the name of higher criticism, in the name of higher learning. They took huge chunks of our Bible out. Well, listen, if you start losing chunks of our Bible, you lose our faith. You use our, everything goes away as we start explaining things away and saying, it's just the culture, it was just the time, it was just that scene, and it's not for us today. So on the one end, you got too literal. Losing nothing and, and, and losing, in the same sense, uh, the grace and, 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 the, and, and, the, and the balanced hermeneutic or the balanced understanding of Scripture that we need to have. On the other end, you got too liberal. Uh, throwing out truth and principles because it's tied to what we see as irrelevant in our culture. In between, we want, not too literal, but not too liberal, but we want to strive to be Goldilocks Christians. <laughs> Just right. Who remembers that one, right? She eats the porridge, and one was too hot, and one was too cold, but one bowl was just right. She sits in the rocking chairs, one was too stiff, and one was too small, or whatever. But, th- but she always arrived at what was just right. And that's the mission of the church. It's the mission of a pastor, is to teach the word in a balanced way. Understanding that some things are going to be cultural and need to be uh, let go of, but also understanding that some things... Uh, are important, that we got to hold to them lest we lose the principles that are tied to the cultural understandings. we got to be just 
Are you with me? All right. So I said all that so we could study our text today. Because what we're going to talk about today is a hotly contested part of Scripture. Uh, We've covered uh, things like false teachers in the first week of this study. We talked last week about Paul and his uh, own testimony and how he didn't feel like he was worthy but uh, was grateful that God gave him grace and mercy. Uh, But now, uh, we're actually going to skip over the first seven verses of chapter 2. Travis Lowe is going to teach those next week while I'm at the men's retreat. But uh, I didn't want to stick him with this passage, so I'm going to stick it. I'm going to I'm going to preach it myself. Everybody ready? We're going to go to Second uh, First Timothy. Sorry, uh, chapter two, verse eight. Here's what it says. There. Can we stand and read God's word together? Read with me. I desire then that in every place the man should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Here it comes. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here we go. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. May God bless the reading of his word. Have a seat. Most preachers skip this part. It's just too explosive. Some of, parts, some of it's too weird. Like, I'll I'll confess to you, we're going to get to the last verse that we just read. I don't know. I read books all week. I still don't know. Uh, But we're going to, here's my commitment to you as your pastor. First of all, I want to remind you that we unite over the majors and we don't divide over the minors. So even if you and I disagree on how these verses should be rendered and understood, it's okay. We, We agree on Jesus. Is everybody with me on that? So all kinds of things divide churches. I think God looks down at all the denominations and all the divisions in the church, and he's like, really? Seriously? We're going to let that stuff separate us over and over again? Uh, we here at our church, we are uh, uh, from our moorings. We have a, an origination, but we are wildly diverse. We have uh, many backgrounds and histories collected here, and uh, we work hard to stay united on the things that matter and to be agreeably disagreeable on the things that don't. The second thing that I want us to know is that uh, I don't want to duck anything in the scriptures. As your pastor, I don't want to avoid the hard parts. That's why a couple years ago I taught the whole book of Revelation, still the longest four months of my pastoral life. But it's in there. We need to try to handle it. And even if we can't completely understand everything that's in our books, or, or let's put it this way, we can't completely agree on everything that's in our books, we need to tackle it together. The last thing I want to say, ladies, is obviously some of these verses that we're going to study today are about you. Um, I want you to know, and I'll tell you this later in the sermon, I fully esteem the equality of women in every way that God's word uh, esteems it. I think women should have equal pay. Women should be able to do uh, things in our society and community that men can do. Um, I'm not a distinguisher uh, or or a, a person who sees the genders as distinct in terms of superiority and inferiority, Okay. I love my wife, I'm amazed by her and my daughter, my mother's pretty cool too, and I want all the women in my life to have every opportunity to be everything that God has desired for them to be. Is everybody with me on that? So before we start talking about what seems like limitations and things like that, I'll say it again, but I want to establish that God equally values men and women. Now let's talk about the tough stuff. I'm gonna just walk through these verses And I'm going to try to apply the things we just learned to the things that we're reading here. Is everybody ready? Uh, The first one is this. He says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So, fellas, here's your instructions as far as Paul is talking to Timothy uh, here in the book of 1 Timothy. He says, hey, pray in holiness, love and peace. Uh, Holding your hands up, optional. I would make that a cultural distinction. Because what does he say there? If I can go back to the verse, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands. Some people read that and they say, well, when we pray, we should lift our holy hands. Every, every time you pray, like if you're at Chipotle today for lunch and you decide to pray for your meal 
Hands up, everybody at the table. If you're going to be literal, that's what you should be doing. Now, if you understand the culture, especially the Jewish culture that Christianity was born from, uh, you knew that uh, Jews, when they prayed, that's how they prayed. Hands up. You go to a synagogue today, that's what's going on. The, 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 the rabbi at the front, he's praying hands up. you got Psalms like Psalm 24 that say, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts so that when we pray to God, in fact, you had all these ceremonial cleansings in the Jewish faith that were required so that when you prayed before God and you lifted those hands, they were clean as a symbol of the purity of your own heart. You didn't go before God without clean hands and a pure heart. So Paul, just assuming that that was the norm in the culture that he was speaking to, said, hey, when you are praying, which you will obviously do with your hands up, pray with holy hands. Pray without anger or quarreling. So, you know, I'm not going to, I can. I could pray right now with my hands up. It would be totally fine. I could pray with my hands down. I could, a lot of times I pray with my face on the floor because I think being prostrate is a fitting spot for someone like me before a holy God. All right? But depending, regardless of what your posture is, pray with holiness. Pray without uh, uh, our, our, our anger or without quarreling. Those are the principles that should per- persist, not the style, but the principles. Pray holy. Pray without sin. Pray uh, without anger in your heart. Uh, you think, has anybody ever prayed angry? Who's, who's prayed angry in here? Anybody ever prayed angry? Something happened and you're like, you know, your boss at work ticked you off and you go to your cubicle or your truck or whatever and you're like, Lord, I pray you rain down fire on his head. <laughs> Lord, crush him. Just ruin his life. He's ruined mine, right? You're not supposed to pray angry. Why? Because when you invoke the vengeance of God, uh, you are commanding God to be vengeful for you. What does it say in the scriptures about vengeance? Who's, who's got the vengeance thing? God says vengeance is mine. Slow your roll, cowboy. If I want to deal with your boss, I'll deal with him. Uh, you should pray for forgiveness. He actually taught us, Jesus taught us that when we, should, when we pray, we should pray uh, that uh, God would give us our daily bread, that he would forgive us our debts as we what? Forgive our debtors. As we forgive our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us, Right? That should be the spirit of our prayer, love, forgiveness, temperance, not anger. He says, listen, in fact, when you, if you've been praying or if you're going to get ready to pray and you've been quarreling with someone, go fix it. You don't believe me? He actually says that in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says uh, in, in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, he says this, verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Listen, I'm I'm playing this too long, but but it really matters to God that we go before him with as much purity as possible. So whether it was in the Old Old Testament system where you'd go to the altar uh, in the the temple or whether it's in in the New Testament system where you're praying in the church, have holy hands. Go without anger. Go with with relationships restored. And in fact, his, his implication in all these texts is, hey, Hold off on the prayer until that stuff's fixed. We're going to take communion here in, in the next couple weeks. And, and one of my concerns about communion in our church, because we put it out on a weekly basis and we have it even as we pass out the shot glasses and the crackers or whatever, um, is that people take it without first examining their hearts. Communion should never be taken empty-hearted. It should never be taken without you saying, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. You should be pure before you partake of this remembrance of our Lord's sacrifice. And I would submit this to you. If you're not, like if you and your wife had a humdinger on the way to church, and they're passing the plates, and you still haven't resolved that thing, that's what the foyer's for. Skip communion that morning. Go figure out your stuff. (gasps) I could never dishonor God that way. You're dishonoring God by eating the food and having the anger. It's a dishonoring thing to God to, to pray in anger, to pray with, with relationships broken. Go fix them so that you can come to him with these holy hands. You can come to him uh, knowing that you have um, purity in your heart when you partake of communion. I, I was a Baptist pastor in my third year at the church. I was standing next to my boss and in the Baptist church that I went to. Uh, they had all the trays out in front and it was the pastors that were helping pass them out and then all the deacons would pass. Who grew up in this church? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And they'd pass all this stuff out and and then they, they got to the end, and the pastor would serve every one of the deacons the bread and the cup, and, and then he would say, everybody take part. And then all eight of us, or whoever was up there, would partake of this, this 
you know, the, the bread and the wine, and or not the wine, oh, Baptist, anyway, but, uh, um, <laughs> but we partake, and I was standing there, and I, I had just had uh, a, 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 a humdinger with Eleanor or my father or something like that. I wasn't relationally right, and the Holy Spirit kept saying to me, don't take it, don't take it. And I'm like, I'm in a suit up in front of God and all creation, and next to my boss, I'm taking this. And he said, don't take it, and I didn't. And to my surprise, no one said anything. No one even noticed. But I was like, oh. And then I went after that, and I remember. I wanted to deal with whatever was keeping me from taking it. Anyway, I'm overplaying this one. But my point is, it's not the hands, it's the heart. And let me say this to you. Do you think women are supposed to have uh, holiness, love, and peace in their hearts when they pray to? Is this just a guy thing? No, it's, it's for all of us. Can we all agree to that? So he's going to go to the women. He's going to say to the ladies, go for more beauty, a moral beauty over physical beauty. Go for moral beauty over physical beauty. It says in verse 9 there, it says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So we're still talking about, you know, functioning in the church and, and, and how things should go in the church when we pray, guys and ladies, I think, you know, pray with uh, uh, purity and with uh, love and peace. Uh, but then ladies and guys, when you come to church, don't be so concerned with your outer appearance that you neglect your inner character. He says, women, you shouldn't adorn yourselves in respect a respectable parable. Uh, you should, sorry. <laughs> That's very different if you read it that way. You should adorn yourselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or golden pearls or costly attire. Anybody got their braids in right now? Who's got a braid in? You are contra-Bible. Uh, actually, some people in some denominations believe you should never braid your hair because in the Bible it says, ladies, don't braid your hair. They don't understand that in the culture of Ephesus, where Tim is the pastor, uh, that was one of the signs of being uh, elite and rich. If you go to the coins of that day, there were women in the Roman uh, hierarchy that had these just huge bouffant, beehive, braided whatever is going on up here. I don't know if they had weaves or what going on, but, but it was this massive hair. And so uh, as a sign of... Uh, elitism or, or cultural uh, hierarchy, you would, as a woman, uh, adorn yourself with that kind of hair. Not everybody back then had jewelry. Who's wearing, ladies, anybody wearing jewelry right now? Fellas, anybody got a, a, a necklace on or a chain? Okay, back in those days, wasn't the common thing. If you were super rich, you had rings and jewelry and gold and pearls, and so you would wear those things to church so that everybody would know that you were super rich. You'd put on the most expensive clothes you had so you could kind of have a fashion show in front of everybody at church and be like, what's up? You know, like that, you know, one uh, government official who put all the name tags of her clothing a few years. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, uh, somebody know what I'm talking about there? Things pop into my head. Anyway, um, but it's like, you know, you're popping your tags and you're showing everybody, you know, this is Dior and this is so-and-so. Um, I'm so grateful that the American church doesn't struggle with any of this, Right? <laughs> That the American church has gotten way past appearances and, and trying to be successful in the eyes of the world and, and that they would never, you know, come to church and, and, you know, talk about their promotions or talk about their new trucks or talk about how they just added this onto their house and they're going on this elaborate vacation. I'm so grateful that, you know, no one in the church would ever brag in the American that we, America that we live in uh, because we all understand that this is not the point of being brothers and sisters in Christ. It's our inner beauty, or it's our inner character that matters and not what on the what's on the outside. Isn't everybody, is everybody picking up my sarcasm on that? I think we still struggle with this. But it's just not how it's supposed to work. So ladies, you have my permission to not work so hard on your appearance. Because I, I know everybody wants to look right and you know feel right and all those things. I'm not saying the steam like that is 100% wrong, but it's not near as important as your inner beauty, your moral character. Now work on that. Now here comes the hard stuff. All of us should function within God's created order. That's where these next verses ultimately take us. Uh, it says, um, uh, that, that, well, uh, before I get to that, I want, I want to read you some of these things that, again, I want to reiterate the value of both genders in God's eyes. It says in, in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 1 at the creation account, uh, it says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. How, who did he create? Male and female are created uh, in God's image. It goes on in Galatians chapter three in the New Testament. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male 
or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Even in some of the texts that seem to speak to headship and, and the, you know, uh, what I think is a, is a false understanding of the superiority of man, uh, Paul himself writes stuff like this, like in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, nevertheless, in the, Lord's wo- in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. We, we need each other. He says, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Everybody get that? Like, woman only came from man the one time. Every man has now, since Eve, come from woman. That's how that works. Birds and the bees, talk amongst yourselves. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and he, he finishes up this whole diatribe on, on you know, our differences and, and, and our, our order by saying all things are from God. And that's where I want us to start. I believe that when the Bible talks about the differences between man and woman, it's not to subjugate one and, and, and elevate another. It's to say, listen, this is how God made things. And we need to function in God's design. It's the same thing as you saying, you know what? I drove here today and my tires were underneath my car. I know that's how it's designed to work, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take them all off and I'm going to set them on the top of my trunk and try to drive home. How's that going to work for you? Maybe you make it, but is it going to be as efficient as if you left the tires where they were supposed to be? No, it's just not how it's supposed to work. Things are meant to operate and function in their design. And so, I want us to take a look at these verses and, and, and take uh, the two prevailing views of them and help us hopefully understand uh, where we should come out or could come out in the discussion. It says in verse 11 of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't think this is a big deal. Um, in fact, does, does somebody like, what? Oh, it doesn't mean that a woman can never talk. It doesn't say that. It says when a person or a woman is learning, let them be quiet. Here's what I was thinking, uh, or what I believe is happening in Ephesus. Uh, the, the women in Ephesus were empowered by the, uh, the, the, the pagan worshiping uh, systems there. Uh, there was a temple for a Diana. And a lot of the women who were coming out of the temple of Diana had been priestesses. They had been authorities in that pagan religion, and they were coming into the Christian church. And so they would want to kind of, just like it says in the first chapter, hey, get rid of the false teachers, the ones who are talking about myths and genealogies. Some of those false teachers might have been women who were, who were saying things that were against God's uh, established order, God's established uh, you know, orthodoxy. And he was saying, hey, listen, when everybody gets together, everybody be quiet and listen to you, Tim. This isn't, you know, like, like God's truth is not up for discussion. It's not up for being mashed in with all of the other truths that people are coming from. Let everybody, women, uh, you know, perhaps because they were some of the more vocal, but let everybody listen and learn in quietness and submission. He goes on and he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she has to remain quiet. Now, there's two prevailing views as to how to render these verses and other verses like them when it talks about women's roles in the church. The first one's called egalitarian. Egalitarianism started, you know, essentially as a formalized movement in the 1960s, corresponded with a lot of the women's liberation movement. Uh, and, and so egalitarianism in its most extreme form says there's absolutely no difference between man and woman. All of those things have been wiped out because of Christ and the cross. Everything that had been put in place, like uh, all the penalties that were given to Adam and Eve uh, at, the, at the garden when they first sinned, which said that woman was going to be subject to man and all that stuff. Everything's been wiped out because Christ wiped out the impact and effects of sin, and so everybody's equal just like it says in Galatians 3.28, uh, there is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So they see no distinctions between men and women. And so anything that's open to a man is open to a woman. Anything that's open to a woman is open to a man. Off you go. Uh, they take these texts and they say, we believe that these are mostly cultural uh, indicators of what needed to be done in those uh, places. Like where Tim was a pastor in Ephesus, apparently there was some really strong-willed women who were getting up and disrupting the church, and so those women had to be quiet. They, they shouldn't have been allowed to teach because they didn't know anything. Just so you know, in the cultures that, uh, that the early church was functioning in, the Greek culture and the Jewish culture, women weren't allowed to teach anything anywhere. Schools, they weren't allowed to go. They were an uneducated lot. And the early church was actually one of the most liberating places for women. Uh, that women and, and men could worship in the same place was completely unheard of in most of the, the religions of the day. Uh, so some, you know, in the egalitarian movement believe that Paul prohibited women from teaching because the culture just wasn't ready for women to be teachers. And that maybe, you know, we should let them catch up with the rest of us before we allow the ladies to teach. They have other things. I can't begin to expand. Uh, but basically, essentially, 
Um, this, this position says there's no distinctions. And so everything that says in the Bible that women are to be limited is just cultural, and we should disregard it as being such. The complementarian view is the other view. Uh, the complementarian view is probably what a lot of us grew up in. Uh, it's been the standard for 1,900 years in the church. And it basically says, hey, men and women are equal before the eyes of God. Uh, we have equal value and worth, but we're different. And we function in different ways. In different parts of the scripture, uh, men are seen as being given headship. And here's, fellas, can I just yell at us for a second? Headship doesn't mean bully. It doesn't mean boss. It doesn't mean uh, that God endorses chauvinism. Headship, in, in, the, in the way that God defines it here, in fact, it says that the, the man is the head of woman, that Christ is the head of the man, that, that God the Father is the head of Christ. Just, he, he brought in the Trinity there, and this is in 1 Corinthians 11. And he's basically saying, hey, listen, in the same way that Jesus submits to God the Father, who, if you understand the Trinity, Trinity or the Trinity, uh, Jesus, God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit are co-equal. There's not like, you know, God the Father on top, God the Son down here, and, you know, redheaded stepchild, God the Holy Spirit down here. They're co-equal, but they're equally submissive to each other. And so what, what men have been missing in, the, in the, the texts that they've been preaching, oftentimes to hold women back from the things that God wants them to experience and do, is that, is that they don't understand headship. They see it as authority. It's not authority, it's responsibility. You're responsible for stewarding God's creation, Genesis 1. You're responsible for stewarding your marriage, your family. You're, you're in charge of making sure that the, the people, the, the boys and the girls, the men and the women in your church flourish under your leadership. Not cower under it. You're not here to subjugate. You're here to enable, to honor. It goes on in the text, I'm out of time. It goes on, <laughs> I'll, I'll find it, here we go. For, for the, it says, for Adam was first, uh, formed first, then Eve, and then Adam was not deceived, but, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. If I can just summarize these verses, he's basically saying, listen, it, it makes it sound like Paul's saying it's all the woman's fault. The woman blew it. Okay, here's the deal, fellas. If Adam had been doing his job as the steward as the responsible head of creation, Eve would have never had a chance to blow it. Adam stood there and watched her do it. And now, Eve's sin, just so we're clear, Eve's sin was controverting God's order. God put this plant in, or this tree in the, in the garden. He said, hey, if you eat of this, uh, you'll know, you'll have knowledge of good and evil. Satan comes up to her and says, hey, you know what? God doesn't want you to eat of this plant because you'll be just like him. And Eve was like, you know what? That would be awesome. I'd love to jump a couple levels. You know, I was created from Adam. I'm, you know, uh, his equal, but his complement. And, uh, you know, it'd be awesome if I could be just like God. And then Adam made the same stupid move. Eve tried it, and she's like, I'm still here. I didn't die right away. Maybe you want to try it too? And Adam's like, yeah, it'd be cool to jump a level. I'd love to be just like God. And so the first sin was a sin against the order of God's creation. And that's all Paul's really saying. I gotta cover verse 15 real fast. It says, uh, she will be saved through childbearing. Can I get a, you know, what's that uh, game show? Can I, is there a lifeline here? I, uh, here's what it could mean. It could mean that women are saved when they have babies. The Bible doesn't teach that. We are saved by grace through faith, uh, not by our works, so that no one can boast. Everybody with me on that? So let's throw that out. You're not saved by having kids, ladies. Uh, it could mean that you're saved through childbearing. No one's ever going to die having a baby. That's not true. That's happened way too many times in history, right? Uh, here, here's the rendering that I like best, and uh, it actually doesn't show up in our English. The, the English uh, doesn't carry the definite article in front of childbearing. It's, it actually reads, yet she will be saved through the childbearing. And if, if that is actually how it's meant to be translated into English, then it could possibly mean that, that women, just like men, are saved through the birth of a child. That child's name is Jesus, all right? And Jesus came, born on Christmas, died and rose again around Easter so that you and I might be saved. Are you with me? That one makes the most sense to me, but everybody I read was like, punt, I have no idea. So we'll find out when we get to heaven. 
get in line behind me. I got lots of questions. This is one of them. But it goes on and it says, if, if they, women, continue to, to function in faith and love and ho- holiness and with self-control, those are all the trappings of the Christian faith. So here's the deal. You might be wondering who I am. I gotta go baptize some people. Everybody stick around after. We're gonna baptize some people. Uh, it's gonna be a huge celebration of their faith. Uh, I'm gonna do that right after this. But uh, you might be wondering, who am I? I, I made up a word. I'm a complegalimentarian. And I don't mean to be on the fence with this stuff, but here's the deal. I came from angry Baptist churches that I believe abused complementarianism uh, by uh, keeping women down. And I am convinced, uh, partly because if I do go cultural on this, I believe the fact that women weren't educated, uh, that there was no scripture for women to teach from back then, certainly relegated not just women who are uneducated, but also men who are uneducated. Don't forget that Paul had told Timothy, hey, get get the liars, the false teachers, get rid of them too. Anybody who doesn't know what they're talking about, don't let them stand up in front of people. They're going to mess this up. Because back then, no Bible. If you were the purveyor of truth in your church, you had heard it from an apostle like Paul, and you were just saying what he said, unless you got a letter from him, and then you could read that. But you and I, we got a book. And any woman that gets up to teach in a crowd is under the authority of Scripture, in the same way that I, your pastor, am under the authority of Scripture. What do I pray every time I preach? Not my truth but your truth, not my words, but yours. You speak through me, and you speak through your word, God, so that you are the authority, not me. I don't want you to hear Mark's ideas. They're lousy. I want you to hear God's ideas. So that's why I'm both. Uh, I believe that women, uh, in certain instances, under the authority of a, of, of a, of a God-ordered or a God-designed uh, male uh, uh, servant headship, and get up and teach a body of, of believers, male or female, and say great things. In fact, some of my favorite teachers are women. And they do incredible jobs speaking from God's word. I, I believe you can have a marriage, of, and should have a marriage of the two, to where women are able to experience everything that God has designed them to have. They're still here. You may disagree with me. That's totally fine. I don't think that's... Uh, necessitates us ever not being together and following Jesus Christ and the things that matter most. But I didn't want to duck this, duck this passage. That's where I am, and that's where uh, I trust everybody as you discern and examine the original meanings and contexts as you glean the spiritual uh, principles that are eternal and then live these things out. That's what I pray happens every time that we're together. And I pray that's what happened today. Amen? Can we pray? Hey, God, thanks for a chance. Uh, to talk through these things, and I pray that uh, you would just continue to uh, shape us and mold us, Lord, if there's ways that we need to um, uh, change our thinking, whether we're from, uh, you know, two extremes uh, in, in whatever uh, we're thinking now, or we're, you know, just, just needing to reevaluate and rehash the stuff that we've always assumed were true by studying your word and, and really asking, uh, you know, uh, deeper questions. Just lead us to your truth so that we can live it out the way you want us to and honor you as we honor each other. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.